It's very nice to have so many guests staying with us at the moment. I'm not sure how many of you are here because of uh, the study practice day tomorrow or whether you came aware that we were having the work day down at the lake and uh, came here intentionally to plant trees with us and help uh, maintain the property down there. But either way, it's very nice to have you all here. This is the first Saturday of the month and our tradition is that we give a talk on the verse that is offered on the calendar that we have. So the month of December, the Dhammapada verse that's there for this month, verse number 79, which says... Surrendering oneself to Dhamma leads to serene being. The wise perpetually delight in the truth taught by the awakened ones. So a very nice verse and very nice photo on the page, those of you who've looked at it. Uh, a young novice standing there with his arms bowl, looking very innocent. And I'm not quite sure why I chose the picture and that verse to go together. Something perhaps to do with with uh, innocence and purity. Um, it did occur to me that <laughs> that the novice might have just been looking at the cookies on the table and uh, may not have been necessarily surrendering himself to Dhamma at all. But anyway, it's a nice nice picture and certainly a wonderful verse. And uh, the, the story that's associated with that verse, if you uh, read the, uh, the teachings and the tradition, um, the... There's a story of a monk called Mahakapino. There's a story of this monk who um, had the habit of uh, always proclaiming this Aho Sukang, Aho Sukang, which uh, translates as Oh the Bliss, Oh the Bliss, or Oh the Happiness, and Aho Sukang. And, and apparently, um, uh, he was uh, fully awakened, um, arahant, an enlightened, liberated being. And, but some of the other monks who were not as, as liberated and awakened as he was uh, reported this matter to the Buddha. And this, there's this monk, Mahakapino, who's uh, always going on, Aho Sukang, and oh the bliss, oh the bliss. And so the, uh, the Buddha explained to him, well, you know, this, uh, this monk, of course, is, is dwelling in the delight of realization and having uh, realized the teachings uh, and he gave this verse uh, verse 79 of the Dhammapada uh, actually literally the verse translates not as surrendering oneself to Dhamma it literally translates as drinking the Dhamma and, and so the Buddha is talking to who really uh, take in this teaching uh, really take in this teaching and in this case uh, for Mahakapino realize uh, the teachings of liberation, then there is the perpetual delight. And 
But some of these monks, they didn't see that. They didn't see what's actually going on. They didn't realize this monk was liberated and was, was an exalted statement of, of the bliss that he was dwelling in. All they could see was the apparent, what it appeared was going on. I don't know what they thought. Maybe they thought he was caught up in some delusion or whatever, but uh, they didn't see the actuality. They only saw the apparent reality. And I think this is a, a very helpful contemplation for all of us. If we, uh, if we don't remind ourselves regularly, uh, this is why we're Buddhists. We trust there is an actuality. We trust there is inherent order in existence. There's not just the apparent chaos. Certainly there's the apparent chaos. There's plenty of apparent chaos and disorder and disharmony and meaninglessness and confusion. But the realization of the awakened ones is that there is inherent order. There is inherent meaning, relevance to everything that happens. There is the law of cause and effect. And so it's wise for us to, uh, to remind ourselves of that, that the actuality is the point, to move towards. What is it that takes us towards actuality? Uh, not denying apparent reality. There is the apparent reality. But to make much of, to hold up, to remind ourselves that there is this actuality that the Buddha realized, which means that it doesn't mean that we don't feel what we feel in this existence as human beings, but that from the perspective of those who've realized the actuality, there's no getting lost anymore. From those that are fully realized, there's no possibility of getting lost anymore in the apparent reality. On the mundane level, like for us today, uh, I don't know, I hope all of you enjoyed the work down the lake as much as I did, and uh, I find it very inspiring, very exciting to be doing it. Um, however, if all we are in touch with is the, the surface level of observation, that which is obvious, that which is, is very apparent, uh, if that's all we can see, then actually what we've got down there is, is just a... Uh, a waterlogged field with a whole lot of plastic tubes scattered all over it. Totally uninspiring, very unbeautiful. But from a perspective of the bigger picture, it's a forest. It's a wonderful forest. And the, the trees that some of you were today planting around the north side of the lake and the, the, the habitat that that's going to give to wildlife and, and then those of us that were helping with uh, transplanting, uh, relocating the trees in Ajahn Sumato's aspen circle there, what a beautiful space that's going to be in the middle of a lovely woodland and, and then also uh, painting the inside of the lakeside chapel there. That, uh, okay, at the moment it doesn't look very inspiring, but uh, what it's going to be, what it can be, uh, the potential. So from the perspective of our practice, how do we incline towards actuality? and not settle for the superficial perceptions of the apparent reality. How can we incline in that direction? Well, of course, there's many different uh, approaches to practice. Uh, this is certainly what 
what all the teachings are essentially about. Uh, but it's important that we don't just pick up some technique that worked for somebody else, but we, also, we actually feel as we go along. So is this working for me? Now, for some people, uh, what's important is to make their, take their minds and lead their condition, train their, their minds in states of very deep stillness and tranquility and to make investigations at that deep level. For other people, uh, trying to make their mind peaceful and, and uh, setting up the goal of, of achieving a certain level of, of tranquility only seems to increase the stress and brings more disturbance, more confusion to the mind. Personally, what I have conviction in and what some of you will have heard me talk about on more than one occasion is feeling for the right question that is going to undermine our assumptions. Unless, unless we are really alert, really mindful, we so easily default to operating on the basis of assumptions. Assumptions about ourselves, inwardly, what I can do, what I can't do, what I'm capable of. Assumptions about each other. Uh, He's like this, she's like that. Uh, Assumptions about the world. And we seriously limit ourselves as a result of these uninspected assumptions. Yet if we are willing to question our assumptions, question apparent reality. Just like if we ask any question, if, we, if, if we're asked a question that's relevant to us, it generates energy, doesn't it? Somebody asks a question, a meaningful question, a relevant question. I don't just mean a kind of superficial question like, you know, what's your mother's maiden name? I mean, these days, signing on to all sorts of things on the internet, they ask you your mother's maiden name. So presumably most of us know our mother's maiden name. There's a very easy question. It doesn't generate a lot of energy, a lot of interest. When somebody says, what's your mother's maiden name? You just come out with it. But if somebody asks a, a deeper question, you know, like, what do you think is the most important thing in life? What matters more than anything else? Now that question it triggers interest, doesn't it? At least for me it does. It triggers interest. It triggers energy. And so this is the path of practice that I have confidence in and I would encourage is finding for ourselves how to ask those questions, not just easy questions, but actually troubling questions, uh, sometimes difficult questions, challenging questions, the questions that untangle us we're tangled in our views, we're tangled in our assumptions, and so we're stuck with these assumptions about ourselves and the world. So the right kind of question, at the right time, asked in the right way, all of those things are very important. We might have the right question, but we're not asking it with, <coughs> with sensitivity. We're not asking it with respect. We're not asking it with kindness. Yeah. 
So the right kind of question, asked at the right time, in the right way, has the power to take us deeper, take us beyond the assumptions that we have about ourselves and about reality. And they're not, as I said, some of these questions, these relevant questions, meaningful questions, are not necessarily easy questions. They, they, they can challenge us. But if we're properly prepared with, with, a, with a broad field of awareness, not just a contracted, limited, focused, narrow possibility for being aware, but we've cultivated a broad field of awareness which includes the whole body-mind in a passive and in an active state, if we prepared ourselves with this, well then it makes asking such questions more realistic. To not lose the spirit of inquiry, tamawichaya is the, the word the, the Buddha used, tamawichaya, one of the factors of enlightenment, to ask the right kind of question, the right way at the right time, to undo the tangles, to undo the knots, to take us beyond the assumptions that we believe in and keep us stuck on the level of apparent reality. Hmm. Now, some people, this is a, a natural disposition, and for those people, that's, I would encourage it. For others, it's not necessarily a natural disposition, and, and maybe that's not the path of practice for them. But personally, as I said, I find it very attractive, <laughs> even the questions that are difficult sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes they're attractive, even if they're difficult, they're attractive because they're honest. Asking difficult questions of ourselves, it's because we know, yeah, I'm still telling lies to myself. I'm still kidding myself on that level. If I wasn't telling lies to myself, I I wouldn't be so unenlightened. I wouldn't be so confused. And so even the questions that are difficult can sometimes feel good. I remember the first, uh, some of you will have heard me talk about this, but I'll talk about it again because it does seem relevant. The, the very first meditation retreat I went on um, when I was uh, staying with some friends in Australia and, and uh, this meditation retreat, the teacher taught the meditation, anapanasati, sitting meditation, and then mindful walking and concentration. And, and then on the third day of this retreat, there's this, this observing the quietness of the mind, which was quite new for me, a very busy, active mind, always yabbering on about something. And, and just the observation came up, oh, there's just awareness. Or there's just knowing. It was a long time ago now, I can't remember exactly. But. So that's the observation, there's just awareness. But then what came in, which was interesting, was this question, but who knows there's just awareness? And with that question... Interest comes in, energy comes in, and your mind goes a little bit deeper into another level of, of investigation. And so it's, a very, it's not a mechanical thing. We're not, we're not talking about uh, picking up some particular question that somebody told you about, uh, but to feel for our own question and to feel what takes us deeper. And sometimes the questioning may come in the context of of peacefulness, and, and like in that case, in my first meditation retreat, very mundane experience, but still encouraging for me. Or it could be in the context of uh, suffering. So I remember after I reached Thailand and hearing about a conversation between one of the great 
fathers of our tradition, uh, Lung Puan Man, here, the picture we have on the shrine. Uh, one of his disciples, Ajahn Fan, who was um, experiencing fear in his meditation. And so in the dialogue, as I heard it reported, uh, where Ajahn Fan was uh, talking to Lung Puan Man about his practice, about this experience of fear, and, and Lung Puan Man's response to him wasn't, well, you need to go away and focus on the breath more and get more concentrated. His, his response was, he said, who's afraid? Now, if there's an experience, for instance, of fear comes up, it's so easy to assume the, the validity of the apparent, which is that something's going wrong. But if we can take our inquiry to another level and instead of settling for the apparent reality, which is the validity of this feeling that I, me, ego personality is having, so I must be failing, to instead of settling for that assumption, to ask a question that takes us beyond that, that undermines that by asking, well, who? Who's experiencing fear? Or whose fear is it? Yeah, that's the other thing. We always assume uh, that we own these states. We're responsible for them. Now, from the perspective of the awakened ones, uh, the realized beings, well, they know better. They know that there is no owner. There is any, isn't anybody actually who's experiencing fear. Now, we know the theory about that, but the uh, experience of, of uh, just repeating the theory or reading about the theory is not, uh, not going to take us past a certain point. To get past a certain point where, admittedly, we can feel in, inspired and encouraged about the theory of practice, we need to go to another level. How do we get to another level? Well, what I'm suggesting, what I'm encouraging, is this, this contemplation of remembering the apparent reality and the actuality. You know. In everyday life situations where, where something comes up and, and we see we're, we're fooled by the apparent reality. You know, somebody tells us something and you know, somebody, maybe we ask them a question and they just, they just come back with a, some short answer and, and we think, oh, they're a grumpy so-and-so, aren't they? You know, I don't like that person. And then later on you find out that they've just been given a terminal diagnosis and, and so you, know, you realize, well, we had a limited perspective on the situation. We didn't see the bigger picture. We didn't see the reality. We didn't know this person had a very good reason for, for feeling unhappy. And so when these mundane daily life examples happen to us, you, know, you see that rather boggy, soggy field down there scattered with ugly plastic tubes. You think, well, that's not much. You say, well, no, the actuality is something altogether different. And so if we can take these examples of everyday life and then remind ourselves also uh, yeah. the apparent reality of me and my mood, me and my liking and disliking, how convincing they can be you know, when you like something. It can feel so convincing. Oh, yeah, I like this person. So they must be good. They must be wonderful. I want to get to know them more. Or I dislike this person. So they must be an inherently bad person. I want to get rid of them. Don't want to have anything to do with them. Yeah. Or food. Now, there's another good one. <laughs> you know, some of our likes and dislikes with food. It's very easy. 
to get fooled on that level. So, yeah, to say it again, that when we get fooled on the mundane level by the apparent reality, to remind ourselves, well, this also, this pertains in our spiritual practice. When this I and its sense of self-importance, its meanness, its selfishness, self-centeredness, the apparent validity of this substantial experience of limited being comes up, say that's apparent reality. That's not necessarily actuality. How do we get beyond apparent reality? I would recommend finding those questions, their own personal, difficult, uh, challenging questions, asking them at the right way at the right time. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Andamayang dhamma vadakata sadhukarang dhamma sedhukarang